Christmas is coming soon, which means candy canes, Nat King Cole, decorated trees, and people saying all kinds of ridiculous things on social media about how Christmas was originally a pagan holiday. Not just that. All the Grinches out there want you to feel bad about celebrating Christmas. So they're going to tell you Christmas is too commercial, and that nobody really knows when Jesus was born, and that It's a Wonderful Life is just a lot of moralistic therapeutic deism. Here's the thing. The Grinches have it all wrong. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and my latest book is The 25th, New and Selected Christmas Essays. In my new book, I argue that Christmas doesn't need to be reformed, doesn't need to be reimagined, doesn't need to be edited, and that it's just fine the way it is. Christmas doesn't need us, we need Christmas. You can order the 25th right now on Amazon or on the Cersei website. Hello, and welcome to Close Reads, part two of Walker Percy's The Moviegoer. I am Tim McIntosh. And I am Heidi White. And today, you guys, we are proceeding without our wonderful host, David Kern. So sad. David is the usual, I know, he's the usual host of this show, but he and his wife, Bethany, have opened up a bookstore in Concord, North Carolina. And I believe, Heidi, am I right? Yesterday was actually the the grand opening. Yes, it was indeed the grand opening. And so David is, he's working so hard. Uh, Yeah, he really is. And so we are letting him off the hook on recording this week. We're all grieving deeply, but we're hoping he's selling his books like hotcakes. I don't know exactly why hotcakes sell faster than anything else. Like enough to warrant a saying. Yeah. I mean, there it is. So we're really hoping that the books are flying off the shelves like hotcakes fly off the griddle. Uh, Heidi, on Friday, I went to the soft opening of David and Bethany's bookstore. And I will admit, just I've told this to David, and I'm saying this to you and all of our listeners, I was a little bit skeptical about opening up a bookstore. I love the idea. I love the idea of bookstores as sort of a third place. It's not home, it's not business but it's a place where people can congregate. Um, So I'm all for, as an idea, the prospect of opening up a bookstore in downtown Concord. But financially, you know, I want David... And it's risky. We're in the middle of COVID. If we don't get... I'm talking about we as if I'm like financially staked. I'm going to keep doing that. Um, If we don't get, you know, customers and we still have to pay rent... We're going to really struggle. After seeing the bookstore on Friday and after seeing the environs that it was located in, I am a lot more optimistic. And I will tell you why. Concord, downtown Concord, is experiencing this real rejuvenation. So it's like a lot of, you know, smaller towns in the southeast and who knows, around the country that kind of got hollowed out during the middle part of the 20th century. You know, there are all these storefronts that used to sell hardware and have lawyers' offices and restaurants. And in the middle part of the 20th century, traffic was 
push toward large city centers. So in this case, it would have been Charlotte. But now these little city centers like Concord and closer to me, Lilburn, Georgia, they're starting to see a real rejuvenation. And the downtown area of Concord is starting to really bustle. There are gift shops and restaurants and bars and offices. And David and Bethany's bookstore, Goldberry Books, is located right in the middle of this kind of rejuvenating downtown. And so I'm feeling really good. It's really exciting. It's it's really exciting. And so if you're anywhere near the Charlotte area, David doesn't know we're saying this. This was not asked of us. Uh, I've been no, there too. No, was not asked of us. I've been to the bookshop, but I haven't seen it in all its glory other than via, you know, Zoom um, and uh, pictures and all that kind of thing on social media. But yeah. I saw it in progress as it was being put together and the work and the loving uh, curation and care that went into it was, you know, just moving to me. This is this is something that David and Bethany have been dreaming about since they were teenagers. And it's it's so exciting to see it be put back in place uh, in their town. And they have such a vision for place uh, and for home and for community. And they, they want to be, they, they want to be right in the heart of that. And this bookstore is part of it, part of that vision for them, for their family yeah. uh, and for their vocation. So it's really exciting. If you're in the Charlotte area, even if you have to drive a little out of your way, it's worth stopping in. Um, David himself will be there. You know, it's not, it's on employees. It's them. Yeah. Like they are, they're there running this thing. And um, it's it's exciting, but he will be back on the podcast next week. Like this is he's not yes. disappearing, he's not going anywhere. It's just opening week, and so it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, uh, for people who can't make it in physically to the bookstore, again, David doesn't know we're doing that, but you can still support Goldberry Books. Um, at bookshop.org, www.bookshop.org. And you can search for Goldberry Books and you can order anything you want, just like Amazon. Um, but it's better than Amazon because it's supporting small businesses and families whose livelihood is on the line here in the midst of a pandemic and the troubled times of 2020. So if you're buying books for anybody uh, this holiday season, go to bookshop.org. If you can't go into the book into the bookstore itself uh, and, and and order there because it's, it's worth supporting, um, especially as a community of this podcast. So we are just so, so excited. I'm ordering all my books through Goldberry and it's just like Amazon. It's great. It shows up at my house and I'm supporting my friend and uh, getting to read great books. So not only would you be supporting a small business of uh, a couple that we really love, it's my understanding that if you order a book off of Amazon, the percentage of the sale that goes to the author is much smaller than it is if you buy a new book from a smaller distributor or even from Barnes and Noble. So that's another reason mm-hmm. why, kind of financially speaking, you'd be like putting your money in a good place. Agreed. And how's this for a clunky segue, Heidi? <laughs> you know, one of the bookshelves in their charming new bookstore was loaded with Walker Percy books. Nice. One of them being his National Book Award winner, written in 1961, The Movie Go, which the we are here to discuss. Wow. Well done. That was smooth. A smooth operator right there. Really smooth. Yep. Um, Heidi, this week I was texting with a friend of mine 
Rudy, who's I've mentioned before on this show. Rudy uh, is a great reader, a really part of the reason he shows up in the show so much is because I love the conversations that I have with Rudy. He'd never read Walker Percy. He'd heard loads about Walker Percy, but he just kind of had never devoted the time. And he's texting me and he says, Oh my goodness. No wonder people have recommended Walker Percy to me so much. I love this book. I can't, you know, I'm following along with the podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And it made me think, um, because Rudy's enthusiasm I, I don't know that it's matched by all of our listeners. <laughs> I, you know, you and David and I had a little conversation off the air. Like, I'm not sure that our listeners are exactly nuts about this book. And I think we made some attempts on our last podcast to kind of give reasons why people should stick with this book. But I still get the impression it's kind of uh, our audience is divided. Do you have that same sense? I, absolutely. And I think rightly so. It This is a, you know, like I, I said last week, I haven't read this before. Uh, so this is my first read of this book. And the deeper that I get into it, the more I realize, man, this, this is the wasteland. Like we mm. are, we, we are living in a time in which we have no ro- robust Cult, entrenched cultural response to a despair of this magnitude. Mm. And, and I think that it is right and good to resist the, the kind of the, the maze-like intensity that I, I sense from this, from this character. I mean, I, as I get deeper and deeper, I'm like, what is there to love about this man? What is there that is, where, where's the Imago Day? And I, I think that that's the point, though. And so I, I think one of the points of this novel is an invitation to kind of plumb the depths of this man's despair, even without, you know, an objective correlative necessarily mm. to say this is why he feels this. This, you know, this is an exploration of what it is like to live in the wasteland. And because of that, we're still there. We're still there as a culture. And, um, and I think one of the modern problems, particularly this year in 2020, this is no longer an intellectual exercise for us. This is no longer those of us who like to read and are kind of intellectual and like the classical model and just think it was better back then saying, hey guys, this is the wasteland. Like now we all know that we're in the wasteland, right? In 2020. And and I think that's an invitation to books like this that that get into that. But I also think it's perfectly valid that one of the responses to that is I don't like it. I don't like it anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so what would be your response to that, to the, our readers who are like, I really just don't like it. I don't like yeah. it. What, what is your response to that? I think, let me juxtapose this book with the other book that we're doing on um, Patreon. So those of you who are Patreon supporters probably been listening to, um, the, the podcasts on the Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring is an all-time classic, and part of the reason it's so compelling is because good and evil, there's just a bright line between the two of them. Good centers itself in some ways on the Shire, this locale of hobbits that have invested in their lives in gardening and neighborliness and 
um, a, a, a sort of life that's like, it's probably very traditional. It's agrarian. It's beautiful. And the great threat is Mordor. Mordor is dark, imperialistic, but the difference between the Shire and the Mordor could not be clearer. And there's a sort of satisfaction, a deep satisfaction at, at, at going with our hobbits and our wizard and Aragorn to like, fight this fight. And we know it's going to be hard. And we know that like, getting to Mount Doom is going to be a tremendous trial, but it can be done. And I think there's something additionally satisfying about reading the Lord of the Rings now because so much of the world that we live in is this sort of like murk of gray. You know, it's, it's, um, we want to, I think we have a natural inclination to think in terms of good and evil. And I think that can be used for good and it can be used for ill. And I think the Lord of the Rings is this instantiation of a world where good and evil are sharply divided and we want good to win. Good has to win. The moviegoer, by contrast, the contrast between good and evil is so difficult to discern. And we learn, especially in this second section, that our main character, Binks, is like, he's got problems. Mm -hmm. His relationship with women is complicated, to say the least. Um, The way that he looks at his secretary... Sharon, I mean, he looks at her like she's cattle, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways. And so in the first part of the book, I think it was kind of, um, we struggled as readers to know, like, where's the good and where's the evil in this book? And I think in part two, book two, we're learning that, well, the good and the evil are really mixed up, not just in the external world, but they're mixed up in Binks himself. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right to you, Heidi? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and what we have with Binks, as we're learning here, getting deeper into the novel in this section, is that not mm-hmm. only do we have an unreliable narrator, uh, but we also have an unlikable narrator. Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly what you're saying. And you know, we've talked so much about how many modern novels take on this problem of what to do about that. How do you present a character who is uh, a a manifestation of the fragmentation of a culture? Um, and and how do you make him? Uh, how do you invite empathy and compassion from your readers, uh, or is that even important? And I think that Hemingway, you know, there's. There's plenty of people who don't find Hemingway's characters particularly uh, uh, compassion-producing. But I think that Hemingway is trying to. Whether or not our response to Hemingway's characters is empathy, I think he's really trying to build characters that can be loved by the readers and seen by the readers. Um, And I think that Graham Greene does that too. Mm -hmm. And this particular novel... I, I think that Walker Percy is intentionally crafting an unlikable hero or protagonist is a better word. Um, and, and, and saying, and kind of taking us deeper and deeper into this, uh, 
into his dark perceptions and his distortion, the distortions in his soul, and then saying, inviting readers to like unflinchingly look at that as mm-hmm. a manifestation of the fragmentation of our culture. And, and it takes a, a certain kind of courage to hang in there with that. Uh, and I think in some sense, that's kind of what the podcast is for. Um, yeah. That's kind of what interpreters are for <laughs> is to say, hey, they're, they're, don't give up. You're supposed to feel this way. It's part of the experience of the book. Um, And so I think that would be my particular response to this. I have the same kind of visceral reaction of like, oh my gosh, like, can you just like get over your inner life for a minute? But (laughs) that like, is it possible you might be seeing something? Are you 16 years old? Like there's there's Mm. this, but I, I think that that's kind of, a reaction we're meant to have because one of the questions the book is asking is what else is there? If he wanted to come out of the darkness, what lifeline would he grab? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to suggest that the three women of this book are three perspective lifelines for banks. Oh, interesting. Keep going. Go on. Um, so we mentioned already Sharon, uh-huh. his secretary. She's the latest in kind of like a string of secretaries, it sounds like. Right. Um, I'm going to describe Sharon. Okay. She's happy. Yeah. She's competent. She's attractive. She has a moral compass. She knows kind of like that Banks is going to be making his play and she knows that she's going to be resistant. You know, it's, it's, she has a stance. Second character, Kate. Kate uh, has shown up and will become more and more prominent as we get deeper in the book. Kate is, as we might say in the South, a mess. Mm-hmm. She's a hot mess. Uh, She's a hot mess. Banks goes to pick her up because his aunt has asked him to go find Kate. She's out wandering somewhere. Uh, Kate was engaged at some point. She breaks the engagement. She seems to enjoy drinking a lot. And she also just seems like she might be on the verge of some sort of a neurosis. Kate is our, the second female potential lifeline, I think, for Banks. And the third is his aunt. His aunt kind of is the star of the show, at least at the beginning. Um, she has this kind of commandeering um, stance in Banks' life. She summons him to her house. He replies. He's a little bit scared of his aunt. She um, has a real clear kind of moral stance, philosophical stance about the world. And she seems like she is in a perpetual state of um, disappointment with Banks. He's not carrying on the family line. He's kind of a a scoundrel in some ways. So I, I, I think these are the three women that Banks is looking to in his life for some sort of guidance, redemption, maybe even salvation. And I have to say, on the surface, the one of the three that he should least be inclined toward is Kate. And yet, 
I had the sense, and I wonder if you do also, Heidi, like there's already the sense like, but he, for some reason, needs to be with Kate. She's a mess. But for some reason, like we're, we're inclining, she is like the preoccupation of his mind, more so than Sharon. I think he likes Sharon because she's, she's very attractive, mm-hmm. very competent. I think he feels a compulsion to be like his aunt because she has this like really clear stance about how a person should operate in the world. Kate though, is the one that we find ourselves being preoccupied with. All right. So Heidi, mm-hmm. <laughs> every once in a while, David and I ask you to put on your psychologist's hat and give us a little bit of a diagnosis here. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Why? So two questions. Why is Binks compelled by her? Mm-hmm. And what's going on with Kate? Yeah, it those are such good questions. Uh as you it's it's I want to answer that in like 15 different ways. So they're like yeah. all bottlenecks in my in yeah. in my throat, right? Uh he does have such a disordered relationship with women, and that's one of the main preoccupations of the novel, one of the main explorations of his splintered uh inner life. Uh, which again is a mirror into the fragmentation of modernity, mm-hmm. um, and and I want to go back to your comparison and contrast specifically between this novel and The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien mm-hmm. was writing at the same time that Walker Percy, that Graham Greene, that Evelyn Waugh, that Hemingway. These these you know quintessential modern writers uh, were. They were contemporaries of Tolkien in England. Um, and what's very interesting to me is how the the different approach, the opposite approach to the same problem, right? The these these particularly the modern, capital M modern American writers, are taking on the problem of modernity on its own terms, right? Like they're inventing protagonists and storylines that explore these problems in the modern world that happened uh, either between the two world wars or after the two world wars. Um, The far-reaching consequences of these this cultural splintering um, are explored in the American modern novels on the terms of modernity, right? Like, what's it like to live in this world? Tolkien comes at it from a very different way, which is this world is, is I don't accept the terms of this world. The, the terms of the world are actually the same as they have always been, it's we who are unmoored from them, right? Um, right. And and so he wrote a story, as you've already pointed out, that that attempts to reorder the modern mind to the enduring story of the world, uh, and and to look at it through the lens of this truer story that he rolls out in the Lord of the Rings, that there is good and evil, that there is a stance that we ought to take, that there is a quest towards an enduring and redeemed kingdom uh, that we can look at through this kind of mythos that he creates in Middle Earth. Um, 
And in so doing, this kind of a roundabout way to address your question about the women in this novel, in so doing, he places within the world of Lord of the Rings, these women who are signposts toward the redemptive vision right. of the world, right? They kind of, they invite the men who are on the quest to see the world in this redeemed way. You have Galadriel, mm. um, you have Arwen, um, Eowyn, right? Like they're the... The women in Lord of the Rings are not main characters. Uh, they are. They tend to be more secondary characters, but they are always playing the role, very much like Beatrice plays in the Divine Comedy, of an invitation to a, to higher things, to better things, as corrective measures to the men who are about to be lost in the darkness. Right, and. And in some ways, we have the opposite of that in this novel, which is a quintessentially modern problem. The men in the world have lost their vision for true femininity, and, mm. and then the women are actually participating in their destruction rather than being these stabilizing forces that have their own rich world, of course, right? But mm. but mm. both of these, both of those novels, both the moviegoer and Lord of the Rings are, are from the perspective of the men in the novel. That's perfectly valid. That's fine. There's plenty of novels about women as protagonists. So in looking at them, the women in these novels play opposite roles. Instead of inviting Binks to be better and, and to find some kind of meaning and to come out of his broken inner worlds, the women in the novel just push him deeper into it mm. and don't even try. Like they are full participants in the darkness and his mother is, and which we see in the next section, not really here, yeah. but we get some, some foreshadowing of that. Um, there's nobody in his life. There's no woman in his life saying, let's try to get out of this mess. Okay. I'm going to push back on that. Cause I, I see the aunt is definitely wanting him she to get out of to. the mess that he's in. That's but true. to your point, the romantic relationships or the potential romantic relationships, Kate and Sharon, no, they're not offering any sort of any sort of guidance. Right, you're exactly right about that. Yeah, and I sh and I should say my response to that would be, and I think you'd agree with this. My response to that would be the problem with her is with problem with Aunt Emily is that she has she the the solution she tries to provide is not sufficient to the problem in his mind. Right, right? it's just like we'll come back and be and fully enter our empty kind of society that is just like so self-indulgent echo chamber. Right. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and he's like, I don't want any part of that. Yeah. So she does try to help him, but she doesn't provide a robust moral solution or spiritual solution. <laughs> I think here's, what's interesting. Oh, let's, let's talk about the aunt for a little while. Yeah, we talked about her last week. Um, we can come back to Sharon and Kate. We're never really going to leave Sharon and Kate. I think that the kind of like choice between these two women is going to be really central toward Binks's search in his future life. Um, the aunt. So on page 78, there's this strange, she writes this letter to Binks and it has this strange excerpt from Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> I'm going to read it. So for me, say 78. There's no salutation or signature, only a single fat paragraph in a bold backhand slant, back slanted hand. Quote, every moment, think steadily as a Roman and a man to do what thou hast in hand with perfect and simple dignity and a feeling of affection and freedom and justice. 
These words of the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus strike me as pretty good advice, even for the orneriest young scamp. I read the aunt as being that quote from Marcus Aurelius, I think is the aunt's take on that, that is her personal philosophy. Every moment think steadily as a Roman and a man to do what thou hast in hand with perfect and simple dignity and a feeling of affection of, and freedom and justice. Now I'm going to say this, the relationship between Christianity, which to kind of look, look forward in the book and stoicism is a complicated one. Absolutely. It's a really complicated one. And I, and I, I think you can find the kind of complication even in Paul's epistles. So Paul actually quotes from a Stoic philosopher in the book of Acts, right? It, you're talking about Acts? Uh, yes, it is. It Acts is 17. Acts. Thank you. I started to say Romans, but you're right. It's Acts. And he, the quote is a glowing quote. It's a commendation. Even your own poets say is kind of like the the preface Mm -hmm. to him quoting the Stoics. So there's a sense in which, and by the way, early Christianity is born into uh, the early Roman empire. And if you're going to say there's a single kind of governing philosophy, not religion, but governing philosophy, Probably it's Stoicism, at least among the upper classes, more than anything else. So you've got Paul quoting approvingly of a Stoic, and you've got Christianity kind of like growing within this kind of Stoic architecture. That being said, I think that Binks views the Stoicism of his aunt as either a, a something to be rejected at maximum or at minimum, something to be viewed with great suspicion, great suspicion. And furthermore, I think it is more the latter. I think, I think Binks's answer to the stoicism of his aunt is something like this. I really respect that. I really respect the kind of code of stoicism. And yet There is something about the modern world that when stoicism is dropped into the kind of bathwater of the modern world, stoicism dissolves. It loses its robustness. It kind of becomes um, untenable for reasons that I think we should talk about maybe a little bit later. We can talk about them now if you want to, but I think there's something, I don't think that he's outright rejecting his aunt's stoic stance, but I think that there's something about the modern world that he finds stoicism to be untenable. Yeah. Inadequate. It, it's, inadequate. it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Right? And Why does it sound so ridiculous though, Heidi? Why? There's no framework for it. It's just, and, and, and so I think this is, uh, a a great time to talk about the TV show or the is it TV or radio the this I believe show oh this I believe uh, yeah. I think it's TV okay I think so it's I I think that's such a microcosm for your exact point um, hmm. 
And so he watches the show called This I Believe when people come on and they 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 talk about how they, you know, the things that they believe, which kind of is this like most of the time from what he describes is like this kind of milk soap milk soppy kind of vague uh-huh. humanism right like i believe in the triumph of the human spirit what does that even mean right like and and um and why why believe in that why believe in that if you're like a depressed lonely businessman who has everything and still has net feels like he has nothing right there's no they're just empty words empty concepts to a man who has found himself you know knocked to the ground by an enemy shell, staring at a dung mm-hmm. beetle, uh, mm-hmm. realizing I'm facing death and I have no idea why I'm even alive. You know, in some, in some ways, I think the moderns are on it. Like the, one of the first generations in the history of the world to like really kind of look at that moment and try to build a life out of it, right? Um, to say when you're facing death, what is it that makes you a human being? Um, and what is it that matters if you are dead or alive? Like, this is one of the big questions and everything feels so, he wants everything to feel like that. And so when he faces then this series of people, like on this, I believe saying, you know, I believe that we are, that we should just be kind to our neighbors and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Like there's, there comes, there comes a point, I think in every honest human life, when you ask the question, but why? And then there has to be some kind of answer. And, and the, and the moderns say, no, there don't, there, there doesn't need to be an answer to that. There just is like, whatever you want to believe this, I believe, Mm. right. Let's make a whole TV show about what people want to believe about the most fundamental questions at stake in human existence. And you can just pick one. And, and there's something about Binks that's like, that's stupid. Yeah. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read a sentence. Go ahead, Hattie. Yeah. He's right about that. That is stupid. There has to be an answer. And the people coming out of world war one are like, but it's not Christianity anymore. We all know that because that's ridiculous. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now we're left with nothing or maybe Buddhism or like maybe Marcus Aurelius or, you know, the ant is like, well, maybe, you know, I've got, or maybe like Episcopalian, but not all the way Episcopalian. Like <laughs> Episcopalian mixed with Buddhism, mixed with like, you know, just be like nice to people. Yeah. And yeah. there's there's like this honest response from the modern man that's like, I, that's that's nonsense. So I'm gonna anyway. Read a section that's going to that's gonna make your point. Mm-hmm. So bottom of 108 for me, last full paragraph. If I had to name a single trick, so the, the background is Banks is talking about all of these different guests that are brought on to this program, mm-hmm. this I believe. If I had to name a single trait that all these people shared, it is their niceness. Their lives are triumphs of niceness. They're like everyone with the warmest and the most generous feelings. And as for themselves, it would be impossible for even a dour person not to like them. Tonight's subject is a playwright who transmits this very quality of niceness in his plays. He begins, I believe in people. I believe in tolerance and understanding between people. I believe in the uniqueness and the dignity of the individual. End of quote. Everyone on this, I believe, believes in the uniqueness and dignity of the individual. <laughs> I have noticed, however, that the believers are as far from unique themselves and are, in fact, alike as peas in a pod. Quote, 
I believe in music. I believe in a child's smile. I believe in love. I also believe in hate. End quote. This is true. I have known a couple of these believers, humanists and lady psychologists who come to my aunt's house. On this, I believe they like everyone. But when it comes down to this or that particular person, I have noticed that they usually hate his guts. Mm. I did not always enjoy this, I believe. While I was living in my aunt's house, I was overtaken by a fit of perversity. But instead of writing a letter to the editor, as was my custom, <laughs> I recorded a tape, which I submitted to Mr. Edward R. Murrow. Here are the beliefs of John Bickerson Bowling, a moviegoer living in New Orleans. It began and ended, I believe, in a good kick in the ass. This, I believe. I soon regretted <laughs> it, however, as what my grandfather would have called a smart alecky stunt, and I was relieved when this tape was returned. I've listened faithfully to this, I believe, ever since. I believe in freedom, the sacredness of the individual, and the brotherhood of man, concludes the playwright. This, uh, I believe in believing this, I believe. There's something really insipid about like what the playwright is saying. And I hate that someone whose craft I'm like uh, emulating. Uh, you should be the hardest so. on playwrights. As a playwright, <laughs> yeah, you right. should be the hardest and most incisive. Maybe you're right. But there is something really... Uh, it, it, I think one of the things that I appreciate so much about this book is that there's, there's nothing wrong in what's being said by the playwright. There's nothing wrong. It's not, it's not offensive. It's not racist. It's not... It, it, it just has no teeth. Right. It just doesn't have any teeth. There's no... Yeah. And I think that Binks is, it's kind of funny because his reaction to it at first is, oh my gosh, this drives me crazy. But then he kind of accepts it. Mm -hmm. I don't mean he accepts it wholesale. I just mean, I think he, he kind of shrugs and thinks, all right, I just got to get on with it. But it drives me crazy. The niceness of the show just drives me a little bit crazy and rightfully so it ought yeah. to drive an honest thinking person crazy because to your point about it not having teeth there's you can what does it even mean to say i believe in a child's smile that's mm. like that doesn't mean right. anything it's right. so like i get i understand what the person is trying to believing. say right i believe in believing why what's the point of that right like everything that Bing, every problem that Binks has with this, to your point, I love the word insipid, shallow, superficial approach to human life. And by the way, uh, this is, I, I've seen so many, so many statements just mm. like this on social media, like this morning, right? That there's, so this is, this is relevant to the modern public square or to the contemporary public square, just as it was in 1960, one when it was written that there's the it is right for the person who's paying attention to say but why humanism right like but why yeah why like what why not just go punch a child in the face rather than saying i believe right. in their smile like and i realize that that's a that's brash or even crass but it's it's a real question. And I think Binks is asking the question. And then what we see in Binks and Kate uh, and, and in his kind of 
to your point, there's this two juxtaposition between these two relationships with these two very different women, right? What we mm-hmm. have with Sharon is kind of the animal nature. He has a desire for her. Um, and uh, even the way that he describes her as very, um, to your point, it's bestial, right? He describes mm. it the same way you would like a heifer on a farm. And um and then on the other hand, then there's Kate, who's like this double mirror, this mirror of his own despair uh, in female form. And so like calls to like, right? So yeah. they have this bond because they both have the same questions about modern life. And they're both honest enough to live it out. If it is true that there is no, that stoicism, the best that the world ha- that their world has to offer, which is embodied in Aunt Emily, right? The very best of Southern culture, the very highest pinnacle of society, the wealth, the glittering life, the access to, to the good life, right? If that isn't the answer, because she's mm-hmm. cultured and intelligent and she's got it going she's on. kind-hearted, got, yeah. he calls her unselfish, there's nothing wrong with her, right? But if that's the right. very best, embodied as the very best of our society in American culture, and that has no adequate response to the search, then why not just spiral off into despair? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. not? So I got a question about Kate to kind of piggyback on something you said a second ago. Um, would you agree with this, that Binks, Binks's um, response into the modern world is kind of a masculine journey hmm. and Kate is sort of the feminine journey in the same yep. atmosphere. Yes. And so describe Kate to us. What are the aspects of Kate that strike you as kind of like the feminine journey within this, you know? That's such a great question. Uh, All the social pressure on her to marry well, right? Interesting. Yeah. um, She's supposed to marry a society. And her, forgive me, I've forgotten the fiance that she broke up with. Yeah, I could look it up. I forgot also. Um, But anyway, he's, again, he's like a a male version of um, uh, Emily, right? Like he is the the embodiment of success. Like any young society Mm. woman would want to nab that guy. And we see what a fine fellow he is, right? Like he takes Binks Mm. aside and he wants him to be one of the bros again. Um, So he's not just a jerk, One of, I think, Walker Percy's great strengths in this novel is that nobody's a jerk except our protagonist. Right. Everybody's. (laughs) And we, and if we met Binks on the street, I don't think we'd think he's a jerk. It's because we get his, so much of his interiority that we realize, oh, he's a jerk. Right. And I'll just add one more thing. Gosh, I'm a lot like him. Hmm, That's the kind of, that's the, should be the disturbing thing. I think. I mean, I just got to admit it. Sure. There's so much of me that's like, that's like him. And I think that's part of the reason why that I find this book so compelling is that his wry observations about the world like really resonate with me. And, and like a lot of his drives, bad and good. I, I'm like, yep, been there. Totally. Still am there. Right. Yeah. The book seems to be forcing a confrontation from the reader to kind of the, the inevitable and of the modern problem. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, that's, it's a brave thing to do to kind of force that. Um, and so I think that with Kate, to your point, she's, yeah, I mean, 
She has to, she has all of this pressure from all these good, nice people who want her to be happy. So you need to marry mm. somebody and you need to get over this depression. Um, and it's like, go out and join in. And like, there's, there's nobody's being unkind to Kate. They're all trying to right. help her. And, but she is, she does have this feeling of being trapped the same way that Binks does this feeling of being trapped by the expectations of the family, but not having a leg to stand on, on why she's resistant to it. Right. Because they're also nice. Yeah. They're also nice. And they all just honestly want to help her. They're such good, you know, salt of the earth people. And um, so she is in the position just like Binks is uh, in a theme and, and the feminine form of kind of being forced. She's, she's being tried everyone around her is trying to force her into in a gentle way. When I say force, I don't mean unkindly, but kind of push her into what they think the good life is. Um, and then to give her these, these, you know, the equivalent of the, this, I believe speech, right. Yeah. That we see on the TV show. Um, like, this is what you're supposed to believe. And if you would just kind of cling to these things, you'd be happy. And then like marry well. And um, I go out and do good works and mm. you'll be okay. I don't know why you're not okay. And it's, yeah. It seems to me how the, the response from Kate is she strikes me as a very, as she's shattered. Mm, good word. Binks seems distracted. She seems shattered. Mm. If that makes any sort of sense. Like she sort of exists in pieces. Um, I, I, for some reason, he seems to me like he's capable of kind of just like patching his distraction together and continuing to kind of function. He holds down a job. He goes to see movies. He has various romantic relationships and friendships, and he visits with his aunt. So he kind of holds it together. But but Kate strikes me as she's not. She's She's barely keeping it together. Mm -hmm. She's already kind of fractured and is struggling to, and maybe doesn't even want to reassemble these pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's a little, I agree. No, I think you're right. And she, uh, the fact that someone would go to Binks, like, like Aunt M does and Sam, or the fact that someone would go to Binks and say, can you please help Kate? Um, mm -hmm. Shows how hidden away his own kind of, exactly. you know, like exactly. if people, to your point, if people really knew his interior world and how fragmented it was and, and, and kind of this maze of darkness that he's lost in. Um, You're asking the blind to lead the yes, blind yes. in essence. But yeah, he I think is, he is outwardly, again, this is Walker Percy's strength as a novelist. He's outwardly successful. He looks like he's got it together. He tells people what they want to hear. Um, so in, in some ways, if you're looking at it kind of like the, uh, from the point of from the point of view of the Enneagram, he'd be like a three wing four. Right. And she's a strong four. Like, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. she is fragmenting. She is falling apart. She, and she's fine with everybody knowing that she's not a people pleaser. She's, she's just like, I'm a hot mess. Deal with it. Yeah. 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 Um, right. And, and he is more like he, to your point, he is outwardly successful. He makes money. He just doesn't value it. It's not the currency by which he builds a life. Um, and, but he doesn't know how to find any currency at all. And both of them are in that position. And so I think one of the reasons why he's so um, drawn to her in a psychological sense is because she's acting out what he's feeling on an interior sense. So yeah. he feels like she's maybe the only person he can be himself with. Um, and, and she has, 
that this kind of bond with him because he's the only one in the family that actually seems to not be trying to help her and she doesn't want anybody to try to help her. Right. Right. Um, Heidi, I want to transition us into uh, a a short enigmatic chapter. Hmm. And it's the chapter about, um, for me, it begins on page 88, chapter six of part two. And it's uh, Binks is kind of strolling down the road and he spots a Jew. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this chapter is just sort of dropped in the middle of this narrative. And he like steps out of the chapter and he kind of resumes the narrative. And it's just such a peculiar thing. I actually want to read a section of it. It's, only, it's not even a page. I'm going to read the whole thing. So for me, again, it begins on page 88. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you, Heidi, like, what do you make of this? Because it's kind of free-floating. What do you make of this? An odd thing. Ever since Wednesday, I have become acutely aware of Jews. There's a clue here. But of what I cannot say. How do I know? Because whenever I approach a Jew, the Geiger counter in my head starts rattling away like a machine gun. And as I go with the utmost circumspection... And with every sense alert, the Geiger counter subsides. There's nothing new in my Jewish vibrations. During the years when I had friends in Aunt Edna, who was a theosophist, noticed that all of her friends, noticed that all my friends were Jews. She knew why, moreover. I had been a Jew in a previous incarnation. Perhaps that is it. Anyhow, it is true that I am Jewish by instinct. We share the same exile. The fact is, however that I am more Jewish than the Jews I know. They are more at home than I am. I accept my exile. Another evidence of my Jewishness. The other day, a sociologist reported that a significantly large percentage of solitary moviegoers are Jews. Jews are my first real clue. When a man in despair does not, in his heart of hearts, allow that a search is possible, and when such a man passes a Jew in the streets, he notices nothing. When a man becomes a scientist or an artist, he is open to different kinds of despair. When such a man passes a Jew in the street, he may notice something, but it is not a remarkable encounter to him. The Jew can only appear as a scientist or artist like himself or as a specimen to be studied. But when a man awakes to the possibility of a search and when such a man passes a Jew in the street for the first time, he's like Robinson Crusoe seeing the footprint on the beach. I'm so glad you read that passage. (laughs) Yeah, I think that this is one of those little moments in the book that's, I mean, profoundly significant, but easily overlooked, which is something Mm. you addressed last week and said, pay attention to those long, just, you know, to the descriptors, to the descriptions in the book. They, they hold something, they hold a clue, so to speak. And this is one of those, uh, Uh, passages in the book that reminds us that this is a novel about a search. It's not a novel about a uh, despairing young man, necessarily. The despairing young man is the searcher, but it is a novel about a search. It's a novel about a quest for spiritual significance. It's a novel about somebody who wants to find a spiritual weight in the world that can adequately address the despair that he feels growing in his soul. Um, And I really like 
that you pointed this passage out, especially and potentially then we have to ask ourselves, what then does a Jew, what does Jewishness uh, contribute to the search for spiritual significance, uh, to the search for God? And, and he answers it. He answers that even within this passage, and that's the sense of exile, right? Um, which is a mirror into the modern problem um, and a, a, an identifier of, of kind of the uh, the entrenched identity of Jewishness. I'm not Jewish, so I, I don't I don't know what it means to kind of feel this sense of everlasting exile from a promised mm. land. Mm. I don't know how that feels like on a cultural sense, but I sure do recognize that um, on my own individual journey to God, right? That sense of like, where do I find spiritual significance? Um, it, if it is nowhere, then I am in despair. I am in exile. And so um, I think that that's the thing that he is identifying and hoping that to find some kind of solidarity, some kind of sense of, of community, even within that, because Jew, the identity of Jewishness is a communal identity. It's not just an individual identity. And I think that's something that he is recognizing as a clue. And he is so lonely. Yes. And so to kind of be surrounded by a community of exiles has got to be a tremendous pull from him. Heidi, I'm going to read a paragraph from uh, an essay that I, and I, and I posted this essay on the Facebook page. Those of you who are listening along, if you haven't kind of gotten plugged into the close reads Facebook page, please do it. You will meet a ton of, <laughs> you might be a community of exiles, you know, like maybe what Binks is searching for. I posted, um, an essay by Walker Percy called The Delta Factor. And I think it's a great companion piece to the moviegoer. He has this great paragraph. I'm just going to read it. So this is Walker Percy from an essay called The Delta Factor. The book is called The Message in the Bottle. Where are the Hittites? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today, there are Jews, but not one single Hittite, even though... The Hittites had a great flourishing civilization, while the Jews nearby were weak and were weak and obscure people. When one meets a Jew in New York or New Orleans or Paris or Melbourne, it is remarkable that no one considers the event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder if there are Jews here. Why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. It's the end of the paragraph. I think it's so good. I think that there is something about the, the, the clue. I think is exactly what you said. There's this sense of kind of like, here is a fellow exile, but I think there's also something about the kind of historical legacy Mm -hmm. of the Jews that this small, um, impoverished, relatively weak tribe from the middle East is still flourishing today. What's more, um, has an incredible legacy, both of oppression and of great, incredible vitality attached to them. Also, the Holocaust is this mark that's indelibly linked with the Jews. So there's something for Binks about seeing a Jew that brings all of this to mind. They are a clue. And it's interesting that Percy just 
drops it in. Mm-hmm. He just drops this little chapter in and then he keeps skating. You know, he keeps going, he gets, Binks gets distracted by other things. So that's something I think we should look forward to going forward. Does this little clue go anywhere for Binks? Does it, um, does it, does it help him on his search? Is it just kind of free floating evidence that the search is somehow it's possibly going to yield fruit yield a destination something to look forward to as we read on to the end of this book i think that's great i man i love that paragraph about the hittite i've never read that or heard that before that's great um i think on another another level of significance for this particular um section also has to do i think on a literary level and a theological level with the progression of time towards the uh towards Christianity, right? In order to, it's mm-hmm. uh, in in the unfolding narrative or story, historical pattern uh, that leads to Christ is a strong, you know, in the Bible, it begins with Jewishness, right? And, and then it, from there comes the full experience of the Christian faith. If you, in other words, uh, you can't be a Christian before somehow acknowledging yourself as a Jew in some way, right? Being Mm. a Jewish comes first. And um, not that, I mean, those of us who are Christians, myself included, I've never been Jewish. I'm not saying you have to literally be a Jew, but there is this sense of like um, the, the captivity, the exile, the, uh, the impact of law versus grace, those kinds of, um, those, that kind of development towards um, the, uh, the full expression or experience of, of the cross and Christianity that comes first. And so if the book is leading towards a conversion experience of some kind, uh, it makes sense that there would be uh, an experience of exile, of captivity, of, of the wilderness before the promised land. And I haven't finished the novel, so I don't know. Um, But I, I think it's significant that that's directly addressed here. Yes. Heidi, before we start moving into kind of the conclusion of the podcast, I want to say one more thing about this little chapter, about this kind of like seeing the Jew as, as an evidence, some like a, for the first clue in the search. The latter part of that chapter, Percy talks about the different ways in which a person could pass a Jewish person on the street and kind of like understand his relationship to them. Um, when a man is in despair and does not think in his heart of hearts that the search is possible, and when a man passes a Jew in the street, he notices nothing, right? So that's one perspective, like way that a person could pass through the street. Nothing, nothing matters. When a man becomes a scientist or an artist, he's open to a different kind of despair. When such a man passes the Jew in the street, he may notice something, but it is not a remarkable encounter. To him, the Jew can only appear as a scientist or an artist like himself or as a specimen to be studied. That's the second way of kind of knowing. So it's a kind of a scientific or an artistic way of knowing. But Percy in this book is all about this different way of knowing. Third thing, when a man awakes to the possibility of a search and when such a man passes a Jew in the street, for the first time, he is like Robinson Crusoe seeing the footprint on the beach. So there's something about being on the search that, that 
changes how a person thinks of himself in relation to evidence, facts, um, another person in this, this instance, a Jew. There's an essay that Walker Percy wrote in the same book, The Message in a Bottle. Uh, and the book, the essay is called Message in a Bottle. And it's so great. It's so great. He says, um, the situation of being a human being is to find yourself as a castaway on an island, right? This is the situation that you're in. You're a castaway on the island. And imagine that a series of different messages within a bottle come floating up onto shore. You're desperate for any sort of um, contact with the outside world. You're a stowaway. You're, I mean, not a stowaway. You're, a, you're stranded on a desert island. You go and you begin opening these messages from the bottle. And here are some of the examples that we give of messages that this, this person on a stranded, stranded on an island discovers. Lead melts at 330 degrees. Two plus two is four. Chicago is a city on Lake Michigan. Chicago is on the Hudson River, or Chicago is not on the Hudson River. At 2 p.m. on January 4th, 1902, the residents of Manuel Gar- Gomez in Matanza, Cuba, a leaf fell from a banyan tree. The British are coming. The market for eggs in Bora Bora is very good. If water, John Brick is. Jane will arrive tomorrow. Okay, so he lays out all these different messages, but he says, I think this is just so exciting. This is like a major moment for me. Not all of those messages are news. They're not all news. And a man on a search really needs news. He doesn't need to know the price of Bora Bora, the price of eggs on Bora Bora. He doesn't need to know that two plus two is four. He doesn't need to know that lead melts at 330 degrees. These are valuable pieces of information, but what he really needs to know is the news. And so the most important message in the bottle is the British are coming. It like has a bearing on where he is. Right. On what he must do, on how he must live. If the British are coming, I might be able to escape or maybe I need to like prepare some sort of a defense. If the British are coming, right. they're going to attack me. It's news. And I think for, for Walker Percy and for Banks, seeing a Jew is somehow evidence that news exists. Right. If they're not, it's not just passing. It's not just, um, he does not have the stance of a sociologist who is observing data and habits and patterns. Instead, Binks is in the frame of a sojourner, an exile, who is looking for news that has to bear on his situation. Right. I think that's brilliant. I am, and it's. I I love reading the essays of authors because when you read their essays, you get clues. I mean, to your mm-hmm. point, you get these mm-hmm. clues into how to interpret their books. Um, it's not boring to read. It's not extra, right? It's, it's part of the experience. I think of reading a hard book um, is, 
is, you know, go back and read some essays by some authors that you've found difficult. And you might, Flannery O'Connor's another example of this. Great example. Reading Flannery O'Connor's essay gives you clues into how to interpret her work, which is difficult for the average person just picking yeah. up Flannery O'Connor. Walker Percy seems to be uh, in the same way. Another aspect, I think, of the cultural identity of, of the Jews that is relevant to the 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 search of the modern man is that so much, and, and this is something I really love, love a lot um, and relate to on a personal level, is that there's uh, there's this very deep sense of um, how suffering has shaped them as a people. Um, and, and a frank acknowledgement of the pain, a shared pain, a common suffering, a common enemy, um, and, and how much that has shaped their souls towards the transcendent, right? The longing for a Messiah because their people have suffered. And, and that's just as core to the identity of many Jews living in New York City right now as it was to this, the, the ancient Jew, and and I think there's a beauty to that, um, and and a meaning to that that I think that Binks is looking for. Yeah. Um, that is there something that will take this suffering that I am experiencing and make it worthwhile, make it meaningful, It'll give um, direction to it. Yes, and 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 the Jewish ident- the Jewish cultural identity has that kind of embedded within the experience of Jewishness is we have suffered as a people and we are longing for the Redeemer, we are longing for the Messiah, and um, and and of course as Christians and as Walker Percy, Percy is a Catholic, he believes that that was fulfilled in Christ, uh, but uh, but the Jewish identity now doesn't believe that, right? There is still that sense of shared suffering, that sense of national exile, and the sense of the longing to be saved, the longing to be redeemed um, by a strong protector. And and I find that very beautiful and meaningful. And I think that that, I think we should not, we ought not to miss that in Binks's longing and his identification with the Jewish nation here. Heidi, we've come to the uh, end of book two. Next week, book three, then four, then five before our Q&A episode. Um, Let's talk about what we should be reading for, what our readers should be reading for in part three. So just to kind of recap where we've been for part one and part two, again, this is not a plot-driven book. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a book about the interiority of this one lost Southern character, Banks, uh, we've been introduced to his aunt. We've been introduced to Sharon, the secretary. We've been introduced to Kate. It seems like these three characters are kind of our um, three paths that, that Binks can travel throughout the subsequent part of the book. What should readers be looking for in book three, Heidi? Um, I think that readers should, judging by how far we've read, readers should not be looking for things to be looking up in the next <laughs> section. Right. Um, we're heading into the center, the heart of the novel, which usually gets a lot worse before it gets better. Um, and so I think readers should prepare themselves that we're not at the bottom yet. Um, and I, I would look for more disorder and I would look for it to become more difficult for us as readers to sort through Binks's perceptions of his world and his inner life. Um, so uh, I, I, 
I would expect to be kind of be led to more towards the bottom of the maze um, before we're going to come out of it. Yeah. What about you? One thing I'll just give a little bit away. There will be an accident in the middle part in this section that we read for next week. Um, a car accident. And I think that our readers should take note of how Binks feels after the accident. And this will be a big clue in the search. Like he doesn't feel the way that you would expect him to feel after this accident. So that's something to read forward to. Um, I want to thank everyone again for tuning in. Um, We hope those of you who are not quite sure what to make of this book, maybe feel a little bit more like you've got, you know, a path in front of you for interpreting and understanding this book. Um, We are really looking forward to David rejoining us next week. Having David is in a sprint. David and Bethany are both in a sprint. They've got a full household, um, lots of responsibilities with Circe, and also on top of this, oh yeah, they're opening a bookstore. Yeah. So any kind of kind words of encouragement to him that you want to share via the Facebook page would be much appreciated. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. And we missed him this week, but I'll be back next week. He'll be back next week. Heidi, in a couple of hours, you and I are going to sit down to do the Merchant of Venice Q&A. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And Me too. Yeah. We'll put a little bow on on that great Shakespeare play. Those of you who listen to Close Reads, you might enjoy the plays The Thing, which is a sister broadcast also hosted by the Circe suite of podcasts. Um, we are just concluding Merchant of Venice, and Heidi and I are also beginning Richard II, uh, the great historical tragedy, Richard II. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, for being so supportive. And we look forward to reading along with you next week. So on behalf of Heidi White, I am Tim McIntosh. Thank you again and happy reading. Happy reading.